Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we interview Tomiko Brown Nagin, a Harvard University law and history professor and dean of Harvard's Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies. Her biography about a pioneering lawyer, legislator, and judge is titled Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. It was published by Pantheon in January 2022. Tomiko Brown-Nagin was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Professor Brown-Nagin, it's great to meet you. And uh, maybe just to start out, if you could talk a little bit about what attracted you to Constance Baker Motley as a subject for biography. Sure. Thank you for having me on the show. I was attracted to her as a subject after learning through my work on a prior book uh, about Atlanta and the history of the civil rights movement, that there was relatively little scholarly work on her at that time. She litigated the Atlanta school desegregation case all the way to the Supreme Court, which is the context in which I was doing research on her. I wrote a brief uh, biographical sketch of her uh, on the chapter that covered that case. And then I thought, well, I I really would like to study her life and career more deeply to correct the historical record, to reveal to everyone her tremendous impact uh, on the civil rights movement. And also because I thought she would be an inspiring figure and one who would allow us to see the movement through the lens of gender, which is, I think, so important. When you looked at how underappreciated her work was in the historical record. What do you think are some of the reasons for that? Uh, You know, I think the primary reason is that historical significance is coded male. And also that the civil rights movement in particular has been understood through the lens of charismatic leadership. And yet the position that I take in this book is that we need to see the full complement of leaders and styles of leadership that contributed to the civil rights movement. It's an asset for us to know about the complexity and Motley is is a part of that story. She had several stages in her career. Yes. When you look at what you wanted readers to understand about those stages, how would you summarize her life as she moved forward? Sure, one of the primary questions that I wanted to answer for myself and then for my readers is how does someone who is committed to social justice find a way to express that in three parts of a career that had her playing different roles? That is, being a civil rights lawyer is very different from being a legislator and then from being a judge, requiring different things of an individual. And through this book, I explore what Motley was able to achieve in those 
various stages of her careers, as well as the constraints on her and others. And I hope people take away from the book uh, a picture of a pathbreaking individual who did so much to create the America that we know today uh, with equality under law. And I hope they'll also meditate on themes such as varieties of, of leadership, gender and leadership, and this theme that I end the book with and begin it with, the price of the ticket. Uh, that is the relationship between individual achievement and group advancement. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I, I will say that I really appreciate the narrative arc. Um, I opened the book expecting just to glance at the introduction before I set aside time to read it. And five chapters later, I was, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I was pulled in and I knew of Constance Baker Motley and, and thought I knew, you know, a fair amount about her but realized I did not. And even looking at that part of her career, her legal career, where she begins, um, I'm a history professor at Antioch College and I teach US history and the civil rights movement is one of my favorite areas to teach. And the cases that she worked on, I talk about, but I did not realize how pivotal she was in those cases and how long she was at the Legal Defense Fund it just reinforces the point that you're making is that she's playing such a a pivotal role. And similarly with the legislative side, uh, I lived in New York for about 30 years Mm. and I knew she had been borough president, but I hadn't heard people talk about that part of her life. And I guess maybe the question I have is if we look at people who are interested in those areas after reading the book, what do you want them to understand about Constance Baker Motley's role in civil rights legislation or as a legislator or as Manhattan Borough president? Her political career is extraordinarily interesting, including because of the way that she entered it. Uh, She was asked to run for office in the New York Senate and also to run for Manhattan Borough President because the Democratic Party could see what an asset she would be to them. She had name recognition, which is something that's so important in politics, and she had a career behind her as a civil rights lawyer that showed her with one triumph after another in cases that truly did kill Jim Crow and thus, as I mentioned before, established uh, the the world that we know of today where under law, uh, there is formal equality. And I discuss how this moment in her political career coincides with the evolution of the civil rights movement with uh, people interested in black power, Black nationalism, and it's within that context of the changing civil rights movement that some actually thought that she should stay in her lane and and not actually represent African-Americans in part in the New York Senate or uh, as Manhattan Borough president. Uh, They thought there were some people who had greater credibility, and she was backed by not only Black men in the Democratic Party, but she had allies among Uh, white men in the party. And it allows us to appreciate 
the evolution of the movement, but also how the leverage that African-Americans, including African-American voters can have reflects an opportunity set, right? Mm -hmm. So in the context of the black power movement, it is not surprising that Constance Baker Motley, who in some ways is just a conventional uh, Democrat liberal, um, would be a prized asset for the party. And when you looked at those parts of her career, what sources provided you with her voice on how she felt about those experiences? So that's a great question because it took me turning over every page, looking for every scrap of paper that I could find to actually illuminate her voice. Mm -hmm. And that is because one, she was a reserved person. She didn't seek to be the center of attention. Um, she was reserved even in the way that she spoke, measured, and she didn't leave a lot behind that would reveal her interior life, in part because judges are known to try to eliminate a record. Um, so they don't want people knowing the influences on their decision-making. And so what sources did I look at? All of the oral histories that I could find, I looked at her autobiography. I read in the secondary literature for what others in the movement were saying about Motley. So, of course, the biographies of Thurgood Marshall, of Dr. King, and I looked at a wide range of papers. So the papers of Pauli Murray and any variety of people who were contemporaries of hers. Um, to get a sense of who she was speaking to and what voice. And it took a very long time for me to satisfy myself that I had gotten it, that I really could faithfully represent who she was. And I will return to where I started, which is to say the oral history, both histories that had been conducted by others and the oral interviews that I conducted myself were absolutely vital. Not so much in driving the narrative, but confirming the narrative. And I also will say that some field trips I took were really important. Uh, I, she was born in, in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was familiar with the city in part because I earned my law degree from Yale, but I went back to it and considered the entire landscape through her eyes and the eyes of her family. They were immigrants from the West Indies and thought of New Haven as a in many ways, as a land of opportunity. Um, I wanted to try to see the world through their eyes. I also visited Nevis, and that was important because it allowed me to appreciate her cultural context, which, of course, is, is vital to the writing of a biography. One of the things you talk about, particularly toward the end, is where she was placed within the family, that she's not an isolated individual within the family. And was some of that information from oral histories with family members or? Oh, yes. So I talked to her son, uh, Joel III. I talked to her niece, Constance Royster, uh, to relatives, even on Nevis, um, a wide range of relatives, I will say, and was able to get a sense of her continuing 
contact with the family, making space for family gatherings, even after she was on the court and, and obviously very busy. And that's important to know. I also spoke with friends, uh, other judges, lawyers who knew her, and I wanted to get a sense of her work persona, but also just her her personality. And I feel that I was able to do so um, through those interviews and the other sources I mentioned. Can you talk about how she comes to the court? Because that's probably the position that she's best known for. And then also how your training as a lawyer helped you in interpreting what you were reading and, and really presenting her life. Sure. She was appointed to the federal trial court, district court in Manhattan in 1966 by Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he was incredibly proud to have appointed her for a number of reasons. One, his personal commitment, but two, Johnson labored under a bit of a shadow because he was a Southerner and following the Kennedys, who of course were Northeast liberals. And many of them perceived him as kind of a stereotypical Southern bigot. And he was really happy to appoint uh, Motley to the bench and to champion other African-Americans for governmental positions, in part because he bested Kennedy, who, although he appointed Thurgood Marshall uh, to the judiciary, also had a long and lamentable record of appointing white segregationist judges in the South, some of whom I should say Motley had argued before. And the other thing I I want to say about Motley's rise to the bench is that it was not without controversy. Her career as a civil rights lawyer both gave her prominence, the prominence that she needed to uh, be considered, but it also was a point of contention for some people who argued that her experience was too narrow. Uh, Some people questioned whether she could be fair uh, and they mean to, to, to white litigants since she had come out of the civil rights movement. The same was said of any number of uh, civil rights lawyers who were appointed to the bench. The ABA evaluated her and claimed that she was qualified rather than highly qualified, which is the, the best rating because she hadn't argued in the federal district court to which she was being appointed. But of course she had argued all over the country and had much more experience than the overwhelming majority of judges who had been appointed before her or certainly around the time. Uh, she'd argued nine of 10 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. And so she, she had to really run the gauntlet and had her nomination delayed by Senator Eastland, who was called the voice of the South because of his opposition to desegregation, to Brown versus Board of Education. Her nomination was held up for seven months. Uh, and so she did ascend to the bench, but it was not without complications. And that is an important story to hear and to understand, in part because when she was first nominated, there were those who thought, well, this is just going to be a cinch. She's just going to walk into the court with no problems. And of course, those of us who are familiar with the history of, of race in this country, 
would be skeptical that you could just slide to, to confirmation and people would have perspectives and, and feelings, uh, as they say. Yeah. And then the detailed analysis you give of her legal career, the cases. Yes. You wanted me to talk about my own training. In yes, because I'm fairly certain that that positioned you to do what some other scholars would not have been able to do in interpreting her life. Yeah, so it was vital, my legal training. I could read the cases and appreciate how she ruled, but also appreciate the context in which she was deciding cases, both from the perspective of history, but also from the vantage point of courts as institutions and pretty traditional and state institutions in our society. Um, I could appreciate the swirling dynamics. And my appreciation of those meant that I was not at all surprised when she disappointed some people in the civil rights or women's rights movement who had thought that they would have one of their own on the bench and that she would be able to validate the movement at every turn. She did that sometimes, but not always as a judge. If you had the opportunity to ask her questions, are there things that you would like to have been able to ask her directly Mm. as you were writing this? Uh, Interesting question. I I probably would ask her uh, to fill out the picture of her relationship with Thurgood Marshall and the other male lawyers at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I do explain that while she always credited Thurgood Marshall with making her career, their relationship was complicated by uh, a few instances, including her failure to win promotion to his position when he was uh, appointed to the bench, which she thought had to do with race and with gender. I also would want her to reflect on her role as parent and spouse and how Um, she was non-traditional in many ways. And she acutely felt that, as I note in the epilogue to the book, where she mentions that her proudest, uh, greatest achievement is the raising of her son, who turned out well, even though she was often not at home. And you could appreciate both the pride and, and some regret in that statement. Uh, She had an uneasy relationship with traditional motherhood, and I would want to know a little bit more about that. And the reason is not only for the benefit of knowing about Motley, because it's so relatable. It's so relatable. It's something that parents across genders, uh, I think, struggle with, but particularly women who still labor under the assumptions sometimes that to be devoted to a career Uh, necessarily means that one is not sufficiently devoted to the raising of of a child. And in a way, the flip side of that is the devotion from her husband, Joel Jr., that that really comes across, although he's not, you know, he's not present a lot directly, but you convey that he makes possible what she's able to do in, in a large way. Absolutely. You know, they had an egalitarian marriage before that was truly a thing. And it's, I definitely wanted to write about their union and how important it was 
to her ability to do all the remarkable things she did. He supported her. He didn't compete with her. He co-parented their child. Um, he, he was just a doting spouse. And that's a vital part of the story that I, I wanted readers to appreciate. So there's a chapter of the book on their relationship, and then he appears at, at certain moments in the story, including in the epilogue, where she reflects on their union. And she does note, and I think this is just also relatable, that uh, he was a terrific spouse, and he, to some degree, did not conform to gender stereotypes, and yet he was always making more money than she was. And that helped. <laughs> that helped. I, yeah, I thought that was a, a fascinating point because it, yes. it got right to the, uh, the complexity yes. of, of a relationship. Yes, yes. So he, he had that male breadwinner uh, status going for him, even though she had achieved so much professionally and, and, and fame. Yeah. Were there documents that you would have liked to have looked at that weren't available, sources that you well, couldn't every, get to? <laughs> sure, every biographer dreams of a diary. And I did not have a diary to work with. That would have been fantastic. And yet it would have been really unexpected in the case of Constance Baker Motley, because I have the strong sense that she wasn't that self-reflective. She just sort of kept going. There are people who achieve great things and they have a, a strong sense of just reflecting on what they're doing or they reveal their inner conflict, sometimes turmoil, to others around them. Dr. King famously did. But I don't, I think that as a condition of being able to do what she did, she didn't spend a lot of time reflecting on the significance of her life and work, although certainly she knew that it was significant. And, and yet this is a person who is a workaholic uh, and just seems to have an incredible motor inside an incredible fortitude, resilience, and to just keep going. And I will say that one of the points that I make over the span of the book is just how courageous she was. Uh, and it had to be as she was going into the South and encountering a real threat uh, against her life. The question you ask at the beginning in, the, in the, the book about the price of the ticket, how do you think she would answer that question? Well, I do think that she would acknowledge that certainly race and to some extent gender shadowed her career and limited her at specific points. And at the same time, she would, I'm certain, weigh the costs and the benefits and say that it had been all worth it. She liked being a judge. She liked uh, having the ability to touch people's lives. And she uh, seemed to enjoy mentoring uh, generations of judges, women judges, people of color, her law clerks. And so ultimately she would tally up the costs and uh, I believe 
just appreciate the, the life that she had lived and what she had been able to achieve, even though she understood that institutions have their own rules and norms and structures. And, and she became a part of the establishment. If she had early in her life thought that she would be a transformational figure, uh, well, it ended up that she was a part of a system that she had fought against for so long. I do think she was transformational as a civil rights lawyer, but once one is at the pinnacle of an American institution as important as the, the federal courts, there are some constraints on one's ability to perhaps make the moves that one might have imagined when one was much younger. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about the book? I will say that it is a timely release and that we are now at this historical moment that is relevant to Motley's experience. She was on Supreme Court shortlists uh, a few times, and now we are going to see, uh, it, it, it looks like an African-American woman nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been a long time coming, and uh, Motley would be so pleased. She also would be cautiously optimistic because of her own experience. One has to run the gauntlet, uh, but ultimately, with such an appointment, she would be very pleased. That was Harvard University law and history professor Tamiko Brown-Nagin speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder about her book, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality, published by Pantheon in January 2022. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on February 9th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.